Welcome to season four of Planet Possible. We're delighted to be back for another season packed full of insightful guests and evidence-led discussion about topics that are critical to the way we manage our water and environment. A huge thanks to Scube, who are our season sponsor for season four, and you'll hear a little more about Scube later, and we're really grateful for their support. I'm Nikki Roach, and alongside being a passionate advocate for all things water and environment, I'm a fellow of SIWEM. If you're new to Planet Possible, SIWEM is the Chartered Institution of Water and Environmental Management, and our members in over 90 countries are professionals with a breadth and depth of expertise in the topics that are shaping the future of our planet. So let's get season four started, and in today's episode, we're exploring nature recovery. To help unpick this topic, I'm joined by an expert co-host, Sarah King. Sarah is the rewilding manager at Rewilding Britain. An ecologist by background, Sarah supports landowners and land managers to catalyse rewilding through a learning network. And she also works to connect people and data and manage the Innovation and New Challenge Fund to upscale rewilding efforts. So welcome, Sarah. It's great to have you with us. Hello. Thank you for having me. Sarah and I are going to listen to our guest interview together and then we'll discuss our reflections. Our guest interview today is with Tony Juniper, CBE. Tony has been described as one of the hundred people who are making the decisions that affect your life by Country Life in 2009. I love that quote. Tony is a campaigner, a writer, a sustainability advisor and a well-known British environmentalist. And for more than 35 years, he's worked for change towards a more sustainable society at local, national and international levels. And today, Tony is the chair of Natural England, and that's the statutory body that works for the conservation and restoration of the natural environment in England. Tony and I explore what we mean by nature recovery and how effectively we're delivering it throughout England in particular. We have this headline ambition, which is different to what had gone before. We will be the first generation to leave the natural environment in a better state than we found it. Whereas before, you know, the idea was we'd hang on to to, to what remains. There's been a whole load of, of different policies coming forward which will help us to do this. And so it is actually really quite an exciting time for nature in England at the moment, considering, you know, where we've been and and how we've struggled to maintain populations of of declining species and now to be going into this new phase where it is now very much about restoration. So, Sarah, before we hear the interview with Tony, tell me a little bit about Rewilding Britain and the work that you do. Of course. So Rewilding Britain is a charity. We cover the whole of Britain, so that's England, Wales and Scotland. And we aim to catalyse rewilding across 30% of Britain's lands and seas. And that's through supporting landowners, land managers and project managers who are either looking to start rewilding or already have a rewilding project. We also identify barriers to rewilding and we feed that into our policy work. So we work with lots of different policy stakeholders to try and remove some of those barriers. And we also engage a whole range of audiences in what rewilding looks like, what it is, and why it's important, not just for wildlife, but also for people. And have you got a definition of rewilding that you use? It's kind of, because I feel like nature recovery is a term that we're just kind of grappling with, rewilding sort of in the similar bracket, but not exactly the same. So how would you describe rewilding? Our definition of rewilding is that it's the restoration of natural processes to the point where nature can take care of itself. And that sounds quite technical. Essentially what it is, is it's putting nature in the driving seat. So instead of having specific endpoints, whether that's habitats or particular species, what we're doing is putting those pieces of the jigsaw back in place to then allow nature to lead the way and then watch and see where nature takes us and that might be things like re-wiggling rivers to then allow the rivers to function naturally it might be restoring particular species like bison or beavers um, to come and, and kickstart those natural processes or it might be relieving some of the pressure that we've been enforcing on these areas whether it's 
destructive trawling in marine environments or whether it's overgrazing in terrestrial environments. If we remove those pressures, we can then let nature lead the way. But it's also about involving people and people in communities are very much part of rewilding. And, and through rewilding, we can restore jobs, we can restore local communities. Community engagement is a really important part of rewilding as well. And, and we can't forget that when we're looking at our definition of it. Thanks, Sarah. That's a super introduction to the discussion we're about to hear. So time for the interview with Tony. Here it is. A very warm welcome to Planet Possible, Tony. Thank you, Nikki. Great to have you here. So for listeners who might be a little less familiar with Natural England, tell us a little bit about the work that they do. So Natural England is the government's conservation agency in England, and we have a variety of different roles. So one thing we do is to be a delivery partner for government. Government decides policies, including farm support schemes, where farmers are being rewarded for looking after nature, and we help to deliver those schemes on the ground. We're also a regulator, uh, so we declare sites of special scientific interest, help to declare national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty and national nature reserves, and we run, on behalf of government, much of its wildlife licensing work. So if you need to manage wildlife for any reason, Natural England is, for much of it, the licensing authority. Uh, We also have a a role in the planning system, uh, and so advise on uh, the extent to which planning decisions will affect the natural environment. And we are also a scientific agency in being the government's advisor on the natural environment. We need to know what we're talking about, and so we gather and manage and analyse a lot of data. And increasingly, we're seeing a big role for ourselves in forging partnerships to help nature's recovery, because there's a really complicated picture out there, of course, with multiple entities and individuals who have an impact on the land and how it's used. And so if we do wish to embark on the government's ambition to restore nature over the coming years and decades, then it's going to be vital that we do that through facilitating dialogue and bringing people together, as well as having those regulatory and delivery roles. And you talked about nature recovery there, which is a term that's increasingly used. What do you mean by nature recovery? Maybe the best way to explain nature recovery is to contrast it with what we still talk about, but pretty much exclusively talked about until quite recently, which was the idea of conservation. And so conservation implies, and indeed much of the job of doing it has been, about hanging on to what's left. And so in England, much of our natural habitat is gone. Pretty much all of it is gone, in fact. And the best bits that are left are semi-natural. And so we've been seeking to conserve those, to keep them with their wildlife and their natural diversity. And this has relied on drawing lines on maps to say this bit is important and inside here we need to protect wildlife. And in parallel, we've had uh, protection of individual species like birds of prey, various rare insects and plants. And that has served us okay up until now and has been absolutely essential in getting us to the point that we're at. But we now know in the early 21st century that we don't have enough nature left to do all the things that society needs it to do, to catch carbon, to purify water, to sustain pollinating insects, to facilitate public health and well-being. And so we're in a position where we need to expand nature. And so that's going to require us to go beyond what we've been doing, i.e. protecting remnant populations and rare habitats, and moving in to a programme of nature recovery, which is about bringing back much of what has gone. And this is a different job. 
and uh, requires different ways of, of thinking about our relationship with the natural world and having different approaches to how we're going to do this new job of recovery rather than hanging on to the remains of what was once there. Are we set up in England to do nature recovery, do you think, yet, with our existing systems and processes and policies? We're moving in that direction. The key turning point was the 2018 25-year environment plan, which was launched by then Prime Minister Theresa May. And in that, we have this headline ambition, which is different to what had gone before, because it says we will be the first generation to leave the natural environment in a better state than we found it. Whereas before, you know, the idea was we'd hang on to, to, to what remains. So the idea of improving things was set out there. And in that same paper was a commitment to set up a nature recovery network. And this idea is really at the centre of what we're trying to do at Natural England. And the nature recovery network, among other things, set a target to restore 500,000 hectares of new habitat during the life of that 25-year plan, and to do that outside the existing protected areas. And what we need to do is not only achieve that numerical figure, but do it in intelligent ways so that we help to reconnect areas of, of fragmented habitat, make them bigger, get them into better shape, and to ensure that there's more of them. And so that nature recovery network idea really is the kind of engine room of this idea of nature recovery, that there's other things that will need to be done, including in relation to agricultural and development policy. But the idea of, of establishing a very significant proportion of, of new habitat across the country really was the moment when we got into this new phase. And since then, there's been a whole load of, of different policies coming forward which will help us to do this. And so it is actually really quite an exciting time for nature in England at the moment, considering you know, where we've been and, and how we've struggled to maintain populations of, of declining species and now to be going into this new phase where it is now very much about restoration. And what kind of interventions are you expecting that we're likely to see more of then when we talk about nature recovery? Well, some of it is kind of familiar in the sense of traditional approaches still being very much at the heart of this. So we have a very ambitious pipeline of new national nature reserves um, that Natural England will declare over the years ahead. We've done quite a few this year. And in fact, in the last couple of years, we have been very active on this side with really quite significant steps forward, including the Purbeck Heaths National Nature Reserve, one on the Somerset levels that we declared earlier this year, and the most recent one at Ennerdale in the Lake District. And National Nature Reserves, really, you can see them as the jewels in the crown. But as we put those jewels in, into an ever richer crown, connecting them up and making the landscape around them more amenable to wildlife recovery is very much part of the same process. When you look at the landscape of Britain, much of it is in agriculture. And this is why we have such strong expectations of the government's new environmental land management scheme, which will be the new policy vehicle to replace the common agricultural policy, which was rewarding farmers for managing land for food production. The idea now is that we switch those subsidies instead to be payments for ecosystem services. So instead of paying farmers to have land in good shape for, for food production, we will now pay them for carbon capture, for restoration of wildlife populations, for the, for the beauty of the landscape uh, and cleaning up our rivers. So there's, there's that track which is running in parallel. There is also the new tool of biodiversity net gain, which is uh, a measure that came from the Environment Act of 2021, which basically will require builders of, of housing and 
down the track also of infrastructure to be restoring nature at a level which is 10% more than the nature they lose when they enter into a development project. So that's going to be helpful if we can use that in a good way. And then also hopefully seeing more alignment between what we're doing towards the net zero ambition, which of course involves ecosystems. One big area for us is the restoration of peatlands. This is by far the biggest carbon store in the landscape in England. And getting peatlands into good shape, therefore, is a priority on the net zero side. And linked to that is the expansion of woodland cover with separate schemes available now to landowners to encourage them to put more trees into the landscape but doing that in the best possible way, restoring wildlife at the same time as catching carbon. And then, uh, of course, there's the existing protected area network and linking that up and getting it into better condition. And doing all of this through a new spatial planning framework. And during 2023, local authorities will be drawing up these plans, which hopefully, if this is done well, will be integrated with the pursuit of housing targets and upgrading of infrastructure because part of the problem we've had over the 70 years that Natural England and its predecessor agencies have been in existence is the fragmentation of nature and environmental issues outside other policy areas. And so if you're deciding to build houses through one process and then deciding to rebuild nature through another process, and if they're not connected, then of course you're going to finish up with suboptimal outcomes. But hopefully those local nature recovery strategies will be a way of really forging partnerships between all of the actors that need to be involved. So the conservation agencies, the housing developers, the environment agency, the forestry commission ourselves, local authorities, water companies and others to be coming together uh, with people managing the land to be able to, to start alignment in a way which has not really been seen before and you know quite a lot of the the challenge we've got in conservation at the moment as I see it in England is you've got lots of people doing lots of good work but it's not really connected together but if we did put the agriculture budget the biodiversity net gain the money that we will spend on nature-based solutions to reduce flooding the money that the water companies will spend on getting rivers into better shape plus the money that the RSPB and the wildlife trusts will spend if you can put all that together and make it into a single plan I think we're going to finish up with much better outcomes and if everyone's pursuing their own particular agenda through their own particular organisation. So that's easier said than done, but I do think it's worth putting in the effort in to build those partnerships. And this is why at Natural England, a couple of years ago, we changed our mission to now be very explicitly about building partnership for nature's recovery. That's what we've said we're about. Well, as anyone that listens to the podcast regularly knows, I'm a big fan of thinking about connections. So as you say, it sounds like the right direction of travel, although not necessarily a terribly easy one. If we think about some of the compromises and some of the inevitable challenges that link to nature recovery, and I guess the obvious one that springs to mind for me is around that compromise of food production versus nature. How do you tackle those kind of things? What's the approach for being able to you know, be transparent and, and evaluate those kind of big decisions? This is a big part of the, the challenge we've got, is the extent to which quite a lot of the choices that are thrust in front of society are very often binary choices. So is it food or is it nature? Is it renewable energy or is it a beautiful view? Is it housing or is it protection of the green belt? And of course, that takes you only so far when you realise that in a country the size of England, 130,000 square kilometres, 
55 million people living in it, all of those things are necessary. So we do need renewable energy, we do need housing, we do need food, we do need nature recovery, we also need industry, we also need infrastructure, and also we need uh, water supply and, and space for public recreation. And when you think about it like that, inevitably I think you're kind of confronted with the idea of the need for some kind of land use framework that can start to optimise the decisions made in particular geographical regions so that we're doing all these things in the best possible way. Again, a relatively simple idea to convey, a much more tricky one to grasp in terms of how you would actually do it in practice. But I do think that this is something that evades us at the moment, is the ability to take that holistic view as to what is the best use of the land. And, you know, every now and again, food bubbles up the agenda. Every now and again, housing bubbles up the agenda. Every now and again, we're reminded that we need to renew our infrastructure and then there's demand for more renewable energy and energy crops indeed. And so we kind of go round in circles without ever being able to to really grapple with the big picture. And so that is genuinely challenging. And I, I don't blame policymakers for not having cracked it because it is something that has kind of crept up upon us over the years as we've set housing targets. We've sought to provide ourselves with as much of our own homegrown food as we can. We're setting targets for nature recovery, including the 30% of the country protected by 2030. That's a target that's on the table and which was confirmed as UK government policy back in 2020. And so, you know, these things, they all kind of crowd on top of each other. And you could look at it as compromises and trade-offs. But when you go down that route, you tend to finish up looking at two things at a time food versus nature is a really good example. Whereas what we ideally would be doing is seeing not only the holistic picture, but also some of the synergies between these apparent trade-offs. And so the food and farming one is is a really good example, because when you think about it just for a nanosecond, you're kind of realising that actually agriculture, without a healthy environment, it doesn't last very long. You know, our entire food security rests upon healthy natural systems, whether that be a stable climate, replenishment of fresh water, pollinating insects, natural pest control, and healthy soil being at the root of the whole thing, literally. So, you know, to to trade these two things against each other is literally a false choice. We need to therefore have deeper discussions that are more informed with evidence, because we can evidence all of this stuff in terms of the codependence between food security and nature, and to start making some more informed choices that reflect that reality. This is um, something which is complicated, and you know, the popular discourse doesn't necessarily lend itself to this. What we've seen in the wake of the Ukraine invasion, the illegal invasion of a country by Russia, and the impact that's had on prices of fertiliser and food supplies you know, is is a kind of lurch into, okay, well, let's not really be so ambitious about this nature piece. We need to focus on food security. And it's only seeing one bit of the equation when, in fact, to be successful and to be sustainable, literally sustainable, we need to see the whole thing at once. And, And that's quite hard when the media discourse, for example, and much of the political debate, it tends to be drawn into quite simplistic frames of reference. Planet Possible is sponsored by Skube who are at the forefront of innovation, collaboration, digital excellence and customer experience. They help to enable their customers to continuously improve operational efficiencies whilst recognising the importance of and addressing industry-wide challenges such as climate change, the journey to net zero and regularly evolving regulation. At their heart, SKU believe collaboration with customers and industry partners is fundamental to building transformative solutions across the utility sector that ultimately benefit their customers, the consumer and our environment. 
you talked about, you know, how do you see things holistically? What's the framework? And that's difficult and we need to grapple with it. Where, from your perspective, should that come from? Because somebody needs to, at some point, own that at least and own the responsibility for creating those partnerships, creating those approaches. Where should that sit from your perspective, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. And and so delivery on all of these targets going forward, you know, government is still thinking about that. The nature recovery goal that came from the Environment Act to halt species decline by 2030, it's still work in progress. DEFRA is looking at it. The same thing on the 2030 target for 30% of the country to be protected for nature by then. This is still being worked through in terms of how delivery would best be achieved. But we're already doing it at Natural England through the influence and the opportunities that we have. But more is definitely needed. And obviously beyond just the DEFRA group of agencies, so the Environment Agency, Forestry Commission, sister agencies of ours, and we work with them. But this needs to be something that's embraced right across government. That is work in progress. Let's slightly change direction a little bit. I saw in the press recently that the Welsh government are looking at banning the removal of peat, in essence. And we talked a little bit briefly, talked about peatland restoration. Do we need that level of synergy between the devolved administrations doing things that are arguably perhaps in some areas stronger on nature than we're seeing in England? Is there? Are we learning from, from each other? Are we seeing some of those bold decisions being taken? Well, this is now a highly devolved area of policy. When we were members of the European Union, there were common frameworks in terms of legal um, requirements and ways in which we approach some of these things in in quite a similar way because of those, those European codes. That's changing now, of course, and there will need to be some level of, of coordination going forward that not only helps us to learn from each other, but also to reflect the fact of there being global treaties of which the United Kingdom is a signatory rather than Wales, Scotland or England individually. And so having some sense of common purpose around how we deliver 30% protected by 2030, you know, this is going to have to be something which is done in Wales, England and Northern Ireland. And the more we can coordinate, the better. And, you know, we do have very good dialogue at Natural England with our devolved administration counterparts, and we will continue with that. But we are separate agencies with separate political systems. The more that we can learn from each other, the better. And the more that we can be on the same page in terms of delivering on those international frameworks, the better. And in fact, we did publish a joint statement together at the end of 2022, setting out our uh, willingness and intent to be joined up in how we support the UK government in commitments reached at the Montreal Biodiversity Convention meeting. We do have the benefit of the Joint Nature Conservation Committee, which is the UK-wide scientific advisory agency, and through their good offices, we can actually be more together than otherwise might be the case. That's a nice segue into thinking about the the biodiversity COP. So we've had COP27, COP15 for biodiversity feels, to me anyway, like it's less visible, I guess, really. Why have we managed to capture the imagination more broadly of, of the public with climate change than we have with the nature crisis, do you think? Well, having spent quite a few decades campaigning on both, I can see some quite significant differences between the two. One is the success of the climate change campaigners 20 years ago in really putting that subject on the agenda in a way which was very compelling. And the way it was made compelling was the extent to which the media and politics could see it as a very human-facing story. So the 
impact of floods, of droughts, of heat waves, massive storms, sea level rise and people being flooded out of their houses and all all of those kinds of scenarios that are becoming ever more kind of current, they got cut through in the media in a way which was more difficult with the extinction of a rare bird in Brazil. And, you know, the mistake we fell into, not just the environmentalists, but everybody, was seeing climate as a very human facing narrative that had big implications for people whereas nature was about the environment and about animals and plants disappearing you know very regrettable but you know something that isn't really going to affect us this is actually why i spent quite a lot of time over the last 10 years writing a lot about the value of nature to human society and the economy the idea that looking after nature is somehow distant from people's interests it's it's just completely wrong And, you know, we now know that nature's catching a lot of carbon. And therefore, if you want to deal with climate change, you have to fix nature. If you want to deal with flooding and heat waves and all of these extreme conditions, then repairing nature is often the cheapest way of doing that and also the most effective. Food security, we've talked about and the extent to which biodiversity underpins food security. Natural systems are also filtering and recycling our fresh water and also hugely significant for public health especially as countries, including the UK, have a generally an ageing population suffering less from acute illness and more from long-term conditions linked to inactivity or psychological challenges, including anxiety and depression. And we know that nature can help in all of those things and therefore has huge economic and social value. And so it's not only about the regrettable extinction of a bird in Brazil, it's about the future of human civilization, literally. Now, it's taken quite a while for that realisation to catch up with the media stories and the way this has been portrayed as a political challenge. But we are moving into a new phase, and I do hope that COP15 will start to see the elevation of the nature side of this. And we haven't actually helped ourselves with the language either. You know, biodiversity is a very sound concept, but one that is really understood by people who work in conservation or in the natural sciences. And and indeed, the BBC did a survey a few years ago, a vox pop in the street asking people what they thought biodiversity was. And the single most popular answer was that it was a washing powder, which I think kind of sums up sums up the extent to which people, you know, haven't quite got the wow. idea of, of what this means, which is why I tend, um, when I can, to frame this as being about the protection and the restoration of the web of life because you can picture the web of life as being more than a series of individual species a web implies that they're connected which of course they are and also you can think about human civilization as being suspended in that web and the more you slash away at the individual threads the more you bring the risk of a collapse of the the whole web into reality and so That is a language thing, it's a framing thing, and it's a misunderstanding thing. But I I do hope that, you know, over this coming period and COP15 being a springboard, we can actually get into the much more serious and real discussion about how we pursue economic and ecological goals together as a single project. And this goes back to what I was saying about nature recovery and development, you know, as if these things exist in some kind of parallel universe to each other. They don't. Part of the challenge with that is the extent to which, you know, populations across the developed countries in particular are now largely urban and have lost touch literally with the natural world and how it works at pretty much every level. 
getting into a car, going to the office, going to school, going to a supermarket, buying a load of food in plastic bags that's got no relation to soils or pollinators and so on and so forth. And you can appreciate why people find it hard to grasp all of this because they've no first-hand understanding of it all, really. David Attenborough has done a great job with his various TV programmes, but I think that's slightly different because you're getting, you know, a kind of slightly disconnected view of it all through that medium. It's abstract, it's intellectual. Whereas, you know, most of human societies for all of human history until about 200 years ago, they lived very close to nature and they understood this. But now we find it more difficult because of that fundamental disconnection from how this planet works. People just don't know. I mean, that's a huge, that's a huge challenge to overcome. How do we get people more connected with nature in an equitable way, I guess, as well? Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, there's, there's massive issues of social equity in all of this, too. I mean, that's the other thing, is this misunderstanding that somehow looking after nature is a concern of, of better off people couldn't be further from the truth. Well, I was writing about all this reconnection stuff. Actually, I wrote a book with the King back in 2010 called Harmony uh, with a chap called Ian Skelly. The three of us authored a book called Harmony. And in that this theme came out very strongly, the extent to which our collective disconnection is leading to this major problem of being able to convey the gravity of what's now going on. That's a good counterpoint for me, looking back, because at that time there wasn't much discussion about all of this. And, you know, the health and nature kind of connection wasn't really very high profile but now it is and if you look at the work that the wildlife trusts are doing the rspb the national trust natural england the way in which government is beginning to to see some of these synergies you can see that it's moved on but it's a massive project one however that hopefully will get some energy behind it through realizing that there are some really big gains here and so more access to nature for young children improves their health helps them to concentrate and do better at school. And all of that is great, and who wouldn't want that? But what we need to do is to provide more opportunities for children to interact with nature in order to do it. So something there for the curriculum, something there for the NGOs, something for communities, and also something for families, actually. People often ask me, you know, what can I do to help nature? To which I say, do you have children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews? Some of them will say yes, and I say, well, take them out and go and look at nature and do something fun outside at the weekend instead of going shopping. That's the kind of thing that can leave quite a positive legacy and also immediate benefits with it. And so we know that. And then on the public health side, we know that exercise outside is better for you than in a gym in terms of the psychological effect of that. And so the more green space we have that is rich in nature, that can enable people to enjoy the benefits of running water, birdsong, wild spaces that, that can touch a part of the human spirit that you can't do through more disconnected media like internet-based games or games indoors. This is something that um, is, is a considerable opportunity. And this is where the equity piece comes in, because you find that certain groups, they are either socially excluded, you know, people from BAME backgrounds often say that they don't feel as though they're welcome in the countryside and they feel as though, you know, it's not for them. It's more for people of white skin colour and who are middle class. There's a barrier there. And then if you look at the inequalities in terms of the economic inequalities, and you can map this, we're doing it at Natural England, actually. We've got a project looking at so-called green infrastructure to try and map those bits of the country where people don't have access to green space and they tend to be the poorer parts of England. You've got economic exclusion, a level of racial exclusion, and those two things mean that, you know, the benefits you get for health and education, they are skewed away from the people who would benefit from it most. 
thereby bringing in a, a social equity dimension, thereby linking nature recovery with the levelling up agenda. And so, you know, all these things start to circle back and touch each other, again, reinforcing the need to have a, a joined up approach to how we, we, we go forward. I'm just reflecting on your comments and thinking, do we value nature enough? And is understanding the value of nature part of the key to being able to address some of these challenges, do you think? Totally. This is quite controversial amongst some environmentalists. And, you know, when I embarked on my personal kind of mission 10 years ago, whenever it was, and started writing about the economic and social values of nature, quite a lot of people got upset and saying, well, what you're doing is you're basically going to commodify nature, you're giving it the wrong value. Nature has intrinsic values, and that's what we should focus on. To which I said, it's not either or, it's both. And there's at least four or five major values of nature that you can see and which we can appreciate and which in different ways we can understand. So one is that intrinsic value. It should exist for its own right. I agree with that. It's an ethical and moral dimension. It's also of enormous scientific value in understanding how our entire system works and having references that still exist that we can study, which show the history of evolution and life on Earth. There's an aesthetic dimension to it and the way in which we can see beauty and how that lifts the human spirit and inspires people. And then there is this economic dimension, which only recently have we begun to appreciate. And you know what? Over the years, I look back and I reflect on all of this and why we failed to do as well as we should have done. And it is the piece about the economy and the value to society and those practical values that we've underappreciated. We've done very well on saying it's beautiful, done very well on saying it's got a right to exist. We've done very well on saying it's scientifically interesting, but we've been pretty poor at showing people who run finance ministries and treasuries and major corporations that if they don't look after nature, their economic growth agenda is doomed. And it is the economic growth agenda which at every turn for decades has trumped the environmental agenda and if we don't fix that piece in terms of our understanding of the value of nature we will fail and so I would encourage people who are thinking about this and thinking well if you put an economic value on nature you're going to lose it to actually think about the necessary coexistence of multiple values of nature at once and this is (laughs) back to that binary thing again isn't it the environmentalists have got this as bad as anyone you know, it's got to be either or. It's either intrinsic or it's economic. My point is no, it's both and two more at least. Well, with that passionate response, and I like it, Tony, I'm nodding vigorously in agreement. I'm going to come to my final question and I ask every guest this. So if I was to pass you the Planet Possible magic wand, what would you want to make possible if you could make anything change? I think probably I'd just reference back to my last answer and I would say that if I could wave my magic wand the British Treasury and finance ministries across the entire planet would start reporting on the state of nature as a single indicator that is embedded in how they are looking at economic performance. So instead of reporting GDP, we would have a an indicator that is reporting the state of nature, human happiness, and the more traditional economic indicators as, as a single thing. And I think that would give us a sense of, of real progress, because what we're doing at the moment is we're destroying the value that ultimately underpins all of the global economy, but it's completely invisible in terms of how we're reporting progress. So 2% GDP, absolutely marvellous. But if we're destroying the future of economic development, that doesn't strike me as being a particularly honest indicator. 
That's a really solid answer and I'm completely in agreement, Tony. It's been a total pleasure to have you on Planet Possible. Our time has flown by as I expected that it would. So thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure, Nikki. Very nice to speak. Thank you. So, Sarah, what are your initial reflections on the interview with Tony? I think the one of the things that's really exciting that's coming out of Natural England and, and from Tony's interview is that we are starting to think differently about conservation and nature recovery. The UK has really ambitious targets for 30% nature recovery on land and seas by 2030. And I think there's an acknowledgement that if we're going to achieve those targets, we need to see a step change in our approach. And Tony said in his interview that, you know, we can't keep doing things the same. Traditional conservation, where we're looking at fragments of important habitats and species, has its place and has kept some of those really important priority habitats and species protected over the years. But it's not enough for nature recovery. So we do need to change our approach. And I think looking at different ways and and rewilding can be one of these is a really important step change that we need to take if we're going to achieve those ambitious targets. So it's fantastic to hear Tony talking about that. And through our work, we know that Natural England have been really positive around rewilding and nature recovery and taking a different approach and one that looks larger scale than just at the reserve level. Working in partnership as well is, is going to be really important for those large scale changes. So I think that was one of the main takeaways that I took from it is that positivity around, you know, that story of hope. We can do different things. We can be open to change. But to do that, we really need to work in partnership. And I know Natural England have been doing a lot of really important work to build those partnerships. And that's really exciting to see that happening. So we talked a little bit, Tony and I, didn't we, about the binary nature of some of the arguments that we hear around things like rewilding. So it's food or nature, it's economic growth or nature. I'm really interested in your view on that kind of binary view of rewilding. One of the issues around nature recovery and nature and ecosystems and biodiversity, which Tony touched on in his interview as well, is that it's just really complex. And actually, the more I learn about rewilding, the more I see how complex it is. You know, you pull at one thread and you bring the whole web of life with you, as Tony mentioned. And this is something that when we're speaking to landowners and project managers, actually makes it really difficult to look at how rewilding fits in and and how everything is interconnected. It also makes it really exciting because you can start to see all of these different relationships and how everything is interconnected. But the problem with that is that you then have to look at the system as a whole. And when you've got that complexity, it's incredibly difficult to explain that, communicate it, or really identify what we need to do to be able to kickstart natural processes, kickstart rewilding or achieve that nature recovery because we do have this complexity. With climate change and and the complexity of that, we have a single unit of measure, which is carbon dioxide. So you can look at that and it, it really simplifies that message. You can say, okay, what's your carbon footprint? What's your CO2 sequestration on a rewilding project? And although you still have so much complexity put into that, it makes it much easier to be able to then just use one unit of measure. With nature, we can't do that. It's too difficult. We need to measure lots of different things. And we are working to try and see, can we measure specific indicators to break that down a little bit more? But there is that complexity there. And I think if we are to simplify it too much then we we lose quite a lot of the integrity to that system. So that means that when we start looking at things like our food systems and how nature relates to that, we do have this temptation of breaking it down to a more simplified message. But that really doesn't capture what we need to look at. And Tony touches on this as well in, in his interview, is looking at trying to restore some of that complexity. It's not about food 
or nature. We actually need nature to produce food. And, and I've been to a lot of agricultural shows and, and conferences where there's talk about how can we use nature to help produce food. So things like integrated pest management is actually about restoring nature to some of these areas to then naturally manage pest species for producing food. So we need to look at both. But I do think we need to look at what we're asking from our land and how we manage our land across Britain. We do have space for food and nature, but at the moment the balance is too much towards food and other uses like grouse moors, for example, or deer stalking estates, and we don't have enough nature. And if nature collapses because we don't make space for it, that is also going to provide problems for all of these other systems as well. You know, it's about trying to step back and look at the bigger picture, look at the system as a whole, and start to bring in these different elements and work together more. Tony mentions about trying to look at can we start to collaborate more on river pollution as well as producing food and nature recovery and I think that's where that partnership working comes in to make sure that we're not working against each other but we're looking as a whole about how we can achieve everything we need to achieve through our land and I think this is where the proposed land use framework will be really important because we can start to look at you know where is it suitable for things like rewilding and nature recovery and often that's where we have low-grade agricultural land that doesn't produce very much food. The National Food Strategy, for example, has stats in that says that if we take out 20% of land and give it to nature recovery, we're only losing 3% of our calorie intake. So I think there's things like that we can look at to say, OK, is this the best use of that land? Can we transition to something a little bit different? And if we're looking at rewilding, we are still producing some food on rewilding projects through wild meat and harvesting um, and culling deer, for example, where they're too high. So there is still an element of food produced there, but maybe we can get more out of it through ecosystem services, carbon, flood mitigation, water quality by taking a slightly different approach. And I think it's really exciting that we're starting to look at our land use as a whole and thinking more at that systems level. But if we break it down too much into food versus nature, economics, growth versus nature, it's just losing a lot of that complexity that if we look at it as a whole, we can probably achieve much more. So how are you translating all of the complexity that you've just described into a message that's much more easy to understand. Tony talked about, you know, people thinking that biodiversity was a washing powder. You know, ecosystem services is really inaccessible language, isn't it, for a lot of people. Do we even need to communicate this? Does it need to be something the public understands or not? I think in my experience, the way that we're communicating it best is through two different avenues. We've got pictures of what rewilding and nature recovery could look like and we've got animations that are starting to show what our landscape could look like and I think that shows much more than we could describe through technical language and actually from going out and showing these pictures to people it really has inspired them for what we could have in Britain. I think we're also through the rewilding network we can start to showcase case study examples of projects on the ground and use photos to show what they're doing in terms of the engaging with school children, um, social prescribing, green prescribing, the jobs they're creating, as well as the landscapes and seascapes that they're creating. Having real examples, again, helps to inspire people and show them what these areas could look like. 
what we're also doing is trying to build the data and the facts behind that as well. So, you know, we can't just show the pictures and the case studies. We do need some facts behind it, especially when we're talking to stakeholders and policymakers. So we've started to build up a picture of data as well. We can start to show information about the number of jobs that have been created through rewilding, the number of volunteers that have increased. We can start to provide information about how that's affecting biodiversity and nature as well. And there's also developments happening around things like carbon and other ecosystem services. And I think once we can start to build up that combined picture, makes it much easier to be able to then go out to various stakeholders and give them information about what rewilding and nature recovery looks like. And if we were to transition some of these areas towards larger scale nature recovery, this is what that could bring for wildlife, but also for people. And then we can make informed decisions that are based on that data and also on the real case studies. In our experience, that's the best way that we found to start to try and explain some of the complexities around it. And do you think there's sufficient leadership in this space? I think there is increasingly so. I think we definitely need to challenge ourselves to work together more. As Tony said, we need to work in partnership. This is too big an issue for anyone to work in isolation. And I think over the last two years in particular, we've really seen that partnership working, coming together. We as an organisation work with landowners that are private estates. We also work with NGOs like the RSPB, the Wildlife Trust, the National Trust. We're seeing increasingly community-owned projects starting to come through now and we're working with those increasingly. And I think as we start to see this variety of different people getting involved, it means that we can really start to work in partnership and, and start to see that leadership coming through. Um, Natural England have been fantastic about pushing things through and, and showing that leadership as well. We also need the policy asks and the policy work to, to catch up with that leadership as well and make sure that we are removing those barriers to nature recovery. And I think there's still a little bit of work around that. We also need to see some leadership around the financing of rewilding and nature recovery. That's an area where we're starting to hear that there's potential for a lot of private finance, but there isn't that mechanism for how do we get that into nature recovery on the ground. So I think there's plenty of work still to, to be done to really show and, and push forward that. But we've got this ambitious target of 30% nature recovery. And I think that will really help to, to pull that leadership together and, and help with that partnership working. So my final thought, really, I'm interested in where we are at the moment. So we've got that target of 30 by 30, 30% of land and sea, is that right, into nature recovery by 2030. Where does 2023 take us to against that target in seven years' time? Yeah, we're not doing too well against that target at the moment. Um, the current figures are we're probably around 3 to 4% on land. On sea, we've just seen some figures to say that there is still trawling and dredging happening within 90% of our marine protected areas. So I think even for our marine areas, that figure is also pretty low. So we've still got a lot to go to be able to reach that 30% target. But we are seeing some areas of hope and some areas where things are starting to build. And the rewilding movement in particular has been building phenomenally over the last couple of years. We've got now got nearly 200,000 hectares of rewilding land in the rewilding network. We're having people coming to us all the time. We've also started to see through the ELM, the Environmental Land Management Scheme, 22 landscape recovery pilots which have just been awarded by DEFRA, some of which are being managed by the Environment Agency and some by Natural England. And I think that's a real turning point for us to start to see some of these large scale projects coming in. 
And I also know that Natural England and DEFRA are working closely to try and see how can we achieve that 30% and what will that look like. So there's lots of things happening, but we still have a long way to go to be able to reach that 30%. And we need to see a step change in our approach to be able to do it, whether that's through the financing, but also through this partnership working and identifying through the land management framework where can we start to achieve that? So there is a bit of a mountain to climb, but I have hope that we will get there. We're going in the right direction. Well, that's a lovely point to conclude on, really. We call the podcast Planet Possible because we're keen on hope and positivity. And it sounds like there is a lot to do, but actually there's also a lot of green shoots. So that's wonderful to hear. Time has flown by. Time always flies by. I suspect this season will be no different to any others. So thank you for joining us. And um, I really hope you found the conversation insightful and it's given you something to think about in your world. You can subscribe to Planet Possible on your usual podcast player to never miss an episode. And we'd love to hear your ratings and reviews too. I'm really looking forward to sharing the rest of the season with you. So all that leads me to say is a huge thank you to our guests today, Tony Juniper CBE and my excellent co-host, Sarah. So thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's it, everyone. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Planet Possible is produced by Bulb. B-W-L-B Bulb. The best ideas, the strongest content.